Welcome to Where Wine Takes You, a wine podcast that's all about taking this grape drank and turning it into a world-class wine. There's only one place that's doing it in a more exciting way than anyone else, and the people, the stories, the laughs, the smiles behind all these bottles, that's what we showcase here. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Today, the podcast theme is Tales of the Script. We have two folks with an incredible talent in communicating through their words, through writing. Jason Haas, it's been a couple years since he's been on the podcast. He's leading his team at Tablas Creek, started by his father, Bob Haas, in the 60s. That story I'll get into in a second because we talk about his dad in the beginning of the conversation, so I'll set that up in just a second. But Jason is always fun to have on the podcast. His blog and the way that they communicate at Tablas Creek behind Jason Haas's leadership is really second to none. A lot of wineries should pay attention because they just do it right. And it's the reason that when the San Francisco Chronicle or when the New York Times ask a question about Paso or this or that, oftentimes they'll turn to Jason Haas. He's got a great relationship with the media, communicating effectively to the media and communicating effectively to fans of Tabas Creek. Also, another writer that I'm really excited to have on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. I'm a huge fan of R.H. Drexel. She writes for some very respectable wine outlets. We'll get into all of them. Also writes for herself, which I think is exciting. And just the energy of this woman being around her, sharing space with her, sharing company. It's special. I don't know what else to say. I really enjoy her company, and I'm so excited. She has made herself available for the podcast. She is so genuine. She's just real, and I can't wait to introduce you to her. Coming up in our Travel Paso Spotlight, we'll talk to Luke Utzon of Castoro Cellars, also Bethel Distillery, and he and his family are putting on the 10th annual Whale Rock Music and Arts Festival. It started 10 years ago under a different name, and how it's grown and what it's become is something super special. Two days of music surrounded by organically farmed vineyards in just a place that is peaceful, under the oaks. You got stuff for kids, you got... Beer, wine, vibes, art, yoga. It's Whale Rock, baby. The two-day music and arts festival, September 16th and 17th. And we'll talk after our conversation with RH and Jason. We're going to introduce you to Luke Utzon of Castoro, Bethel Road Distillery, and namely the Whale Rock Music and Arts Festival. That is our Travel Paso Spotlight later. All right, to get you into today's show, we got to introduce you to the founder of Tablas Creek, and that is Robert Haas. Now, Bob Haas died in 2018. He was 90, Jason Haas's father, and he was a very well-known pioneer, blazed lots of trails. In fact, when he passed away, I mean, there was many articles I could have picked from San Francisco Chronicle here, a little bit from the New York Times. On the day prohibition was repealed in 1933, Sidney Haas was the 12th applicant, and the family says the first independent store owner licensed by New York State to legally sell alcoholic beverages. He proceeded to transform the Manhattan butcher shop founded by his uncle Morris, who had immigrated from Germany in 1870 into a wine and liquor store. Quote, my dad was a bit of a maverick, said Robert Haas. Well, we know where you got it from. 20 years later, when the store's chief buyer in France, Raymond, died suddenly, Sidney Haas dispatched his 27-year-old son, Bob, to Europe to promptly find a replacement. Fortified with two years of college under his belt, Robert Haas, a Navy veteran and a Yale graduate, fell in love with France and revised his objective. 
Robert Haas told Wine Enthusiast Magazine in 2005, I discovered I didn't want to replace Raymond. No, I wanted his job. Robert Haas, a maverick in his own right, helped expand the store into what it would become after being sold to a rival in 1965, Sherry Lehman Wine and Spirits, one of the best-known wine retailers in the U.S. He also founded Vineyard Brands, a leading wine importer, and at 62, he embarked on a high-risk, long-haul venture as a California vintner to open Tablas Creek. Planting vines brought over from the Rhone Valley in France, Tablas Creek was founded in 1999 with Bob Haas along with the Perrin family, Rhone wine producers from Chateau de Beaucastel. Quote, there's very little that is more a declaration of your optimism than starting a vineyard in your 60s. That quote from Jason Haas, the son of Bob Haas and our guest once again today. And that info on Bob is important because when I showed up to Tablas Creek, yes, with Georgie, we were ushered into Bob Haas's office, which has not changed since he passed away a little over five years ago. With the exception of Jason perhaps going in there to do some virtual obligations or interviews, the office is just the way Bob left it. To have this conversation with his son, Jason, with RH in Bob's office, it was special. I remember my interviews with Bob Haas and I look back on them fondly, but I've never been in his office. It was really cool. We come into the conversation right now talking about just how special it is. Check it out. Give me that moonshine, we'll get by. We pass on round till the job is done. Camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Now, first of all, I got to say, doing this show, look, because we've had moments where I've been here and we've done shows where we've done them prior with your dad, but never have we done it from your dad's office. Yeah, we, it hasn't felt right to, to, to move in here or to renovate it and move somebody else in here. And it's, it's actually really nice having a, a space that's empty a lot of the time that you can go into and have a private conversation. And yeah. it's, it's where we do a lot of our broadcasts from and other live stuff. But yeah, I, I feel his presence. I love that. How much has it changed besides maybe ring lights or lights and a green screen? Because you do a lot of virtual things for, for fans and you're all the media, which we'll talk about and stuff. But how much has this changed? Is this pretty much the way your dad left it? Yeah, very much. Wow. Yeah, he, he, he would walk in here and be like, oh, what are, what's all that stuff doing over there? But yeah. it, it's, the same, it's the same space. We haven't redecorated uh, it at all, really. You definitely feel the weight of, of a conversation and a, of a man of his you know, presence and, and just what he's offered this area and the wine business collectively when you're sitting in the man's office. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yeah, right? <laughs> Did that feel like there were big shoes to fill? I mean, you don't really come across as someone, a guy who like, gets nervous and stuff, but did that feel like that a bit or did you struggle with that? I don't think so, at least not in that way. Um, I think everybody grows up thinking that how they grow up is normal and they grow up their dad is their dad. Um, and I didn't, I didn't do a lot of wine related stuff with him growing up. I didn't see him sort of in his professional capacity, except that our house was 50 yards away from where the vineyard brand's office was. And my mom was cooking and hosting sales meeting dinners. And I would come back from little league practice with my dad and he'd be like, hold on, like this, this we're still in a cocktail hour of this. I got to go change and come back down and, and preside. But um, coming out here, it felt it felt right. It felt it felt like a natural progression. It didn't feel like I was being pushed into doing something I wasn't ready for. And it he was always he was always really good about 
sort of giving you enough space to figure something out. He wasn't somebody who was at all interested in micromanaging anyone. Um, and so, Good leader. And so I, I think to, to my brother's credit, who, who took over big chunks of the import business from my dad when, when he retired from that piece, like I think my, my brother bore the brunt of sanding off some of the, the like first time trying stuff. Um, but no, when I moved out here, my dad was, he was great to work with. He really was somebody who could, who could give you an idea or an inspiration and then, and then let you figure out your own way to get there. Cause you did have a lot of time as a man, you were really in a major role and a leader already and had this relationship with your dad. I mean, I got to work with him for 15 years Yeah, and I got to see him sort of as an adult. I got to see him sort of through the eyes of a lot of the other people who he influenced and who, who were inspired by what he did. And like, that's such a, such a treat, I think, for a kid to get to know, get to know their parents as adults um, and not just in that kind of standard family dynamic that you, that you get to build a new one. And that was a lot of the reason why I moved out here when I did in 2002 was that like my dad was already in his mid seventies. I knew I wanted a chance to work with him and you never know how long you have. And it turns out I got lucky. Got, I got 15 years and this is really what he wanted to be doing. He didn't ever retire from this. Um, he, he was coming in here regularly into his nineties. Um, and he, the, the things that he was able to do physically changed over the years, but he was sharp until the end and like the chances that uh, that I had the the last couple of months of getting to come in here with him once or twice a week and taste some of the newest wines that we had he came up with the idea for one of the new blends that we wouldn't release for another 2 years on like his last day in the office here um that was that was was inspiring rh do you feel that weight as we do this uh, interview in here i do i do i'm i'm a big fan of Tablas Creek and um, of Robert Haas and his legacy, um, rest his soul. So yeah, I did, when I walked in here, when Jason said, oh, we could do it in my father's office, it's like, whoa, this is really cool. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, let's cheers to your dad. <laughs> let's cheers. Robert Haas, I love this. Thank you both. Now, I'm so excited, RH, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I, I didn't even know, and that you actually live here in Paso. Yes, I was in Santa Barbara wine country for about 15 years and then moved to Atascadero briefly. And just in the last year and a half, I've been in Paso. That's cool. And for someone who is, they're probably familiar with your writings because you write a lot. You do a lot in the wine industry and have for decades. Uh, what are the pieces? Where can we find your work, uh, your website, just to give people an idea on, yeah. on the scope of it? So I write for a great guy named Jeb Dunnick. And, and, Never uh, heard of him. <laughs> and he's jebdunnick.com. And then uh, a wonderful uh, woman and MW named Lisa Parati Brown. And her publication is The Wine Independent. Recently, I was with a wine advocate, but I'm not writing for them anymore. But a lot of my work is up there. And then I have my own website, rhdrexel.com. And then Jeb Dunnick started his own thing. And then he must have approached you and said, hey, I would love some of, you know, I, I miss your writing. And Yeah, it all happened kind of organically. I think we all considered Robert Parker, I still do, a mentor. And so when Robert left, I was already a little bit, you know, sort of disappointed that he left. And then, you know, with Jeb leaving and, and Lisa leaving, it just felt like the right time to kind of, you know, Follow them around. What a cool mentor, right? I mean, what an amazing story and path you must have been on where Robert Parker is one of your mentors. I was very fortunate. I met him in my 30s, and uh, he and his wife, Pat, kind of took me under their wings. Um, I love my own father, but I consider Robert kind of a second father. He gives great advice. And yeah, I feel very fortunate. He's funny and intelligent, very compassionate person. In our first time meeting, uh, we met at a, a benefit for, I think, the first, and I hate to say it that way, the first Napa Fire, I think in like in 17. 
scene. Correct. And it was at the Oyster Ridge Barn, Ancient Peaks. And you were like, hey, come here. I want to introduce you to Stanley uh, Barrios from Top, which we've talked about on this podcast. And that's when I first met you mm-hmm. and was really taken. You were just so sweet. And you actually gave me a, a taste of it. Is my saying that right? Yes. And the yeah. taste of it is like that metal uh, little cup with the, the thumb holder. And this is what sommeliers would, would customarily taste from, right? Right. And you just gave this to me and it was almost like she just took it off her neck and just put it on mine. I was like so touched by it because I, I had just met her. And I don't even the, the weight of just that moment just meant so much to me. And then later I find out this was a taste of him that was that was given to you. By Robert Parker. Wow. Yeah. So I I still have it by the way. Yeah, I have um a Better Call Saul apron that he gave me, which I treasure. That's so uh, great. <laughs> yeah, they gave me this Taste of Vaughn. It was kind of a, uh, initially kind of a joke gift because, well, sommeliers are an interesting bunch. I respect many of them, but they're, they can be divisive. And so we sort of sometimes uh, would giggle about sommelier culture and how they can get a little precious about wine. Sure. And so he sent me this Taste of Vaughn. And uh, for years, I had that hanging in my office. And then I thought it would be fun to wear it sort of like bling to this, uh, <laughs> right, kind of like a wrapper bling. or something with it's this bling. bling. And um, And you had such a open and warm nature and this beautiful smile. And I just, I was drawn to you. And I thought, I just, I, I don't know why. I just, one of those things, I wanted to give it to you. So that was that. And that was a, a special night. I And I thought it was so lovely of the Paso community to want to raise funds for another region. Um, yeah. It says so much about this town that I've come to love. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, we always talk about it here, especially on this podcast, the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people are such a, an important piece to the terroir here. Yes. It's something you must have learned right when you moved here, huh? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, we realized pretty early on when I moved out here is that we had spent a ton of time focusing on the raw materials, the soils, the climate, the rainfall, the infrastructure, the grapevines. And one of the the biggest opportunities we still had was to get ourselves more involved in the community. And that was ultimately, I think, what made this work as a as a business is that, I mean, yeah, we imported the grapevines. Yeah, we picked a good spot. Yeah, we had the expertise of five generations of parents looking over our shoulder. But it was really kind of immersing ourselves in both the Paso community and in the California Rhone community that gave us the network that allowed us to, to, to grow into what we, what we are. So... It wasn't something that I was, I had no no expectations whatsoever about what the Paso community was going to be like. I mean, I was moving out here from living in, I've been living in Washington, D.C. for four years. And it's like, oh, I'm moving to the country in California and it's going to be different. But I didn't know anybody other than my parents. Um, and that's been one of the real pleasures of being out here is getting to be a part of the community that that we have been realizing that there were a ton of people in our same boat, like whatever, young, young families, um, all being a part of it. I mean, we, we were just at this past weekend, we were just at the, the big must charities dinner, the big fundraiser. Yes. And we were around there counting. We were like, I think that there are seven other couples that we know that have seniors going off to college in the next few weeks, like just like us. And these are all people who we sort of got to grow with in this community. And it's been, it's been great. RH, how did you find wine? Where, I mean, obviously where wine took you is, is interesting. And I want to get into those roads paved, but how did you first stumble upon wine? Obviously for Jason to be very different. He was kind of like, you're almost like born into this in a way. You were talking about Testavans. My mom still has the collection of like 15 Testavans that uh, I was given for my birth, like from all of my 
dad's pro- like producer friends in, that's in so France. Cool. That's really cool. That's That'd be a cool. It's ridiculous. Like in a box. It's frankly ridiculous. Yeah, but, it's, <laughs> but, but yeah, I guess, I guess it's cool. Anyway, uh, talk about how wine uh, how wine found you and you found wine. Well, I'm an immigrant from the Azores, and I was uh, living my my parents had a farm in Napa, and um, I thought, well, I'll I'll just work at a winery um, when I'm I was 21, trying to get money for ma- for graduate school, and I took a summer job working at Beringer as a tour guide, and uh, I thought, wow, this is a great gig. You get to pour wine for people, watch them smile, make them giggle. Um, I'm it was just uh, it was the job for me. I immediately got the wine bug and um, never went to graduate school. And from there, um, Opus One at the time, this winery in Napa Valley, they still had a construction trailer out front and they were hiring for tour guides. So I applied, I was the second tour guide to get the job. At the time it wasn't open to the public, it was owned by Robert Mondavi and the Baroness Philippine Rothschild. And um, so I was trained by them in hospitality. The architect, Scott Johnson, was the one that gave me my tour. And uh, the winemakers, uh, I mean, the tour to train me, the winemakers at the time, Patrick Leon, Tim Mondavi, and Jean-Vivre Janssens, uh, were the ones that trained us on wine. And so it was an amazing education. I was very, very fortunate. From there, I was headhunted by Camus, uh, by a gentleman named Chuck Wagner, to... Um, do I, at the the last six months at Opus One, I assumed some PR duties, and so Chuck hired me as his communications director. While I was there, I became the brand manager also of a wine called Special Selection, and I helped to launch a brand called Mersolet. And so I really hit the ground running when I was at Camus. I was there for seven years, and uh, loved it. And um, after that, was uh, headhunted to Santa Barbara Wine Country to be their executive director for their Vintners Association, which I did for a little while, and quickly learned I'm completely not a political person and I can't handle a board of directors a bunch of winemakers it was like herding cats so I lasted for a couple of years and then I started my own consulting firm it's a different dynamic huh when you have to oh my represent word. all these members and even though you could be good at PR you could be good at marketing were you good at writing at that time uh, you know I enjoyed poetry and stuff but I wasn't writing about wine at that time but then I went into consulting it just felt like a natural thing to stay in the wine business but I really enjoyed PR I loved being with writers and wine writers and so I thought oh this is I've got these connections that I gained from Camus. Let me just start my own business. And then I also start some marketing consulting, which I still do both. That pays the rent and uh, the fun jobs for me is wine writing. It's so interesting that you were, you know, you loved writing, but then you started loving wine. And at some point you thought, I'm going to combine my love for writing, combine my love for wine, and let's see where this goes. And the people were the conduit, you know, because I love to tell people stories. I don't think I could score wine and write wine for a living first of all my palate's not good enough but uh, what I really want to write about is the people that make it the people who farm it you and I have so much in common <laughs> in that way I'm always very much insecure about like the the the, the dynamo of what my palate is it just it's, it's not there you know and I, I know what I like and I know what you know is good I suppose and after 12 years of doing this show after all the years of you writing I'm sure you're very you've learned a ton about wine but I'm certainly not going to tell people what to think or score it or anything like that so but that's so interesting how many different kind of similarities there are yeah. with you and I Right on. I consider that a compliment. Yeah, well, I certainly do too. Because I really have, when I first met you, I started reading your stuff. And I even read some like Lone Baby and stuff in the last like week or so preparing for this. And you have really developed great relationships with the people, not even just from here. And that's what I love about you. It's beyond like networking. It's relationship building. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's not rocket science. I happen to love 
people. And so when you're talking to them over a glass of wine and you see them relaxing a little bit and sharing a little bit more and becoming maybe a little bit more open and vulnerable, it's a beautiful moment. And so um, it's it doesn't actually, the wine writing part of things doesn't feel like work to me. The deadlines are sometimes looming and they make me a little nervous, but the consulting surely seems like work and sometimes it's difficult. But wine writing for me is, it's an oasis. It's, it's, um, it's my sort of Valhalla. Has the stress of like deadlines at least tempered a bit in the time where we're, we're working remotely? I mean, I mean, I don't know, is it, is like Jeb going, I need this right now? Or is it, or are our deadlines the same way they were back in the day when there was a, a newsroom or this or that? No, it's, it's more relaxed. It's probably, I'm probably my own worst enemy. I, I give Jeb a deadline and I tell him when to expect it and then I make myself reach it. Yeah. So <laughs> I make my, I think I'm, I'm sort of my own worst enemy. He's, right. he's one of the kindest guys in the wine business. And if I was late for a week, he probably wouldn't even care, but I care if I disappoint him now, somehow. What is the angle of your writing with Jeb? Does it have an angle? And then where does like Lone Baby fit in, which I think is the greatest name ever. Uh, but where do like we kind of channel what take these will all be yeah so jeb you know jeb wants human interest pieces he does all he's got a brilliant palette and so i just do deep dives into brands and owners and winemakers farmers that kind of thing lone baby it's a little bit more uh edgy um i swear a lot more and uh it's uh a little bit more maybe Unpolitically, not politically correct. Uh, for Lisa Prati Brown, it's a little bit more formal because her publication attracts a lot of collectors and um, entry level wine lovers as well, but a lot of collectors. And so I have to bring my game up a little bit. And I'm, it's not as conversational as what I do for Jeb. So it's fun because they have different styles. Yeah, and you have like different hats that you get to wear. Exactly. That's yeah. so cool. How do you kind of get yourself into the mood mm. to put? Are we are we writing or are we typing? Probably typing. Yeah. And then how are we, was there a little glass of white wine with us or yeah. are we drinking the wine that we're talking about? Like, how do we get into the zone? You know, it used to be a little bit of cannabis, but I've, uh, I'm no longer smoking. I mean, Why'd I, you stop? You know, I, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm currently part of a medical trial that's microdosing psilocybin. Oh, cool. And so it's not recommended that you use THC because the effects won't be as noticeable uh, of the psilocybin. So I've, I haven't used that for three months, the THC, yeah. the cannabis. But here's my ritual. I'll light a candle, I'll light some incense, and then I have to have music. I absolutely have to have music on when I write. And then I pour myself a glass of wine. And it's usually, of course, the wine by the person I'm writing about. And then it's just... Oh, it's just like taking a vacation in your mind. And I just get to relive that. I record my session so I can transcribe accurately. And then I'm just sort of trying to emotionally vibe off of the experience. How is the microdosing trial going? Oh, it's going so well. I'm so curious about this because we're yeah. reading articles about this and we're seeing this being talked about, you know, in literature often now. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not at all embarrassed to talk about mental health. In fact, I think it's an important conversation. But I've been diagnosed with clinical depression and... Uh, I have PTSD, and both of these were diagnosed in college. And for years I struggled. I've tried every kind of pharmaceutical, and none of them have worked well. And then finally my therapist recommended that I join this trial, and it's been an absolute game changer. It's been an absolute game changer. The clinical depression, the PTSD, and those are complicated uh, you know, things to live with. And uh, I feel like a new person. 
it's not life is not so much of a struggle uh i've always wanted to enjoy it so it's never been that i don't want to enjoy it but now i can enjoy it without trying so hard and it's been fabulous it's been fabulous yeah oh thank you for being so brave to share that with us i really love that just how you're able to share that with us and i think this is something that we should be talking about as much Mm. as as we can because especially with things like ptsd and i feel like maybe we're talking more on on depression and anxiety of late which is good but uh with with things like ptsd and and any other kind of mental health Mm. you know struggles the more we can kind of release that stigma release us of that stigma is is important it is very important yeah you know, I think in our culture with social media and everything, people tend to sometimes fetishize things and they talk about it too much and then it loses some of its meaning. Like, you know, I was watching some reality show. I'll admit it. I watch those sometimes to escape. And, uh, Me too. 90 Day Fiance is my guilty pleasure. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Mine was Vanderpump Rules. And somebody, there you go. Fist bump. Um, and one of the girls on the show was like, oh my God, he didn't show up. I got PTSD. You know, it's sort of like something that jokey. Yeah. Um, uh, but when you live with it, it it's uh, it's a debilitating condition. And so uh, I'm so grateful for psilocybin and for microdosing because you can work and and drive and whatever with the dose and it's sub-psychoactive. You don't even feel it. But in the meanwhile, it's sort of rearranging your interior furniture and making life a little bit more tenable. So it's, I'm a big advocate. Gosh, I love talking to writers. You're just like, everything you say, I just listen to you go, oh my God, that was said so perfectly. <laughs> How did you cross paths with uh, Tablas Creek? Oh, wow. You know, I became a fan of Tablas Creek um, before I ever even moved to the Central Coast. I'm a real big fan of people who have pride of place. And Robert Mondavi had a tremendous amount of pride in the Napa Valley. And I feel like Robert Haas and now Jason, but at that time it was Robert Haas whom I feel like had a tremendous amount of of pride in place. A lot of times when you go to winemakers' homes, even today, when they're just socializing among themselves... They always bring French wines. It's like, oh, yes. look at this Burgundy I brought, or look at this Northern Rhone, or this Southern Rhone, or this Ribera del Duero. They don't bring local wines, and yet they want everyone to drink their wines. And Great Robert, point. yeah, Robert Haas had, you know, the parent family working with him, and he's working with them, and he created this global pride in Paso Robles. And I thought that was so beautiful and brave, and so it just appealed to me as an it just appealed to me. Also, I love America. I'm not ashamed to say that as an immigrant, I think it's an amazing country. Amen. And I just felt like the Tabas Creek wines were the best of America and also with a nod to the old world, but with the complete pride of place. And, 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 so I, and I felt he was revolutionary. And so that's how I came to it. I came to it as a wine lover uh, first. And then when I did my Paso Robles issue of Lone Baby, Jason was one of the first people that I reached out to because I really wanted to to um, pay homage to a brand. I, I really, I, I, brand is too cold a word, to a, an institution that I really love. Why, what is it about Jason Haas that he is like, and I mean this in the most affectionate way, <laughs> But like I'm I, right here. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> but what is it about? He's like the media darling. Like mm. if LA Times has a question about Paso, I'll see his name there or a quote from him. Um, and I'm going to ask you this in a second too. But I love the fact that when a big publication is seeking some information on Paso, often Jason Haas is the one uh, delivering that, and it's such a great. You're, you're just so safe and comfortable behind the words and behind. Mm-hmm what you know he, how he's going to represent you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because it's not egoic. It's it's yeah. informational, it's educational. He's wanting to talk about Paso Robles first, 
And then if it makes sense, he'll talk about Topless Creek. But he's really informing people about the region. A lot of other winemakers, it's all about, I'm, I, you know, it's true. It's, it's about them and what they're doing and their little terroir. But Jason has a more holistic view. And so that's, if I were a writer and I were doing a piece on Paso, he's the first guy I'd call because I would know that he's reasonable, fair, and very informed and generous of spirit. Did this come from your writing? Because you're a great writer yourself. Was it your blogs? You've been on the tip of these things as they came out when people started going live with the Instagrams. You were doing it. Uh, where did this kind of connection to media and being available to them, being known by them, how did that grow? I think that's part of it. I mean, we've been writing the the blog that that we publish for now more than 15 years. And so... In the beginning, at least, it felt like it was mostly being read by other writers. Like, it wasn't really being read by our customers. Yeah. Um, or, or, like, heaven forbid, our distributors. Like, no no way. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was being read by other writers. And so I think that sort of willingness to kind of put my thoughts out there, and then also my willingness to engage with other writers on their own, on their own blogs and websites. And I, I feel like that's part of it that if you are on a deadline and you're you you want to you want a, a quote about something you're you're probably going to call somebody who you have some confidence has already thought about this and so it was often the things that i had written about on the blog that i would get i would get questions about but i, I have a second theory also um and that's <laughs> that's from a, a a writer friend who who called up for a quote for an article he was writing for the san francisco chronicle and he said, I, I really, I don't have any time and you speak in complete sentences. So, um, <laughs> so maybe that's part of it. Those of us in this business know exactly mm-hmm. when you have a counterpart that you are interviewing, especially, you know, in broadcasts or on the air, who's going to give me that concise answer? It's going to be, they're not going to ramble on or I mean, I've had the opposite of that where you ask someone a thoughtful question and they give you like three words and just stop talking you're like <laughs> yeah, you don't want that either no you don't want that either but you do have that and i don't know i mean it might even be just inside you I, it might just be a feeling like you know you you've grasped the point i'm not here to make almost like rh said i'm not here to be egoic and about me i'm not going to ramble on i'm going to answer your question thoughtfully give it all of what it deserves and then i'm going to be done. We've always thought of ourselves as being kind of an open book. I mean, we don't have secrets here. It's, you know, I'll show people around and be like, ooh, can I take a picture of that? It's like, of course you can take a picture of that. Like, <laughs> yeah, we have yeah. no secrets. Um, I mean, we'll share our process. We share how we get to where we are. We share the things that we're worrying about, things that are keeping me up at night. And so I, I think maybe that encourages people that I'm going to give them an honest answer because we don't, we don't have an agenda. Where, yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to happy to help people try to figure out what it is that they're trying to figure out. And I'm sure there's a lot of different aspects. Like you have, you know, the regenerative farming is a big thing. You guys were the first ones to really be named as like a regenerative first, like Vintner, right? To mm-hmm. be known as regenerative uh, in your in your farming. And I want to talk about regenerative farming, but I imagine you get people in the trades who might be hitting you up. I mean, shoot, if I have a question about a wine, I will text him and I feel so bad. He's just he's too <laughs> nice. But I mean, I'd probably like, I've been in the backyard after a couple drinks and it's like, you know, 930 and I'm like, he's fine. I'll call him. You know, <laughs> I feel so bad but no like oh hey what's this like you know 2016 v to v or whatever the old Rusan that i love at um bocastel you know how's it tasting right now i mean but any of these questions whether it's an industry or customer like you are there for people it's the it's one of the easiest things that we can do 
as a as a winery and as a wine community to to help bring people into our world is to be accessible. Regenerative farming. We're like almost kind of like not trying to be equal or neutral by not trying to take as much away. We're actually trying to give back. Is that a great way to describe it? I think it's a great way to describe it because I think the idea behind something like organic farming is you're trying to you're trying to do less less harm. You're trying to use fewer or none of the of the chemicals that can cause problems. But it's still a pretty input intensive, resource intensive way to farm. And so the idea behind regenerative farming, it, it sort of builds on some of the basics of biodynamics where you're trying to create an ecosystem that is self-sustaining, but it's much more concerned with the side effects of the decisions that you make. So I think of it as like externalities, the externalities of your farming decisions or your hiring decisions or your animal husbandry decisions. Like you, Regenerative farming is concerned that those externalities are positive on your people, on your neighbors, on your community, and on the broader environment. Give me an example of something that would be regenerative that's even beyond biodynamic or organic. Sure. So... Um, Biodynamic is, for people who don't know, it's basically a system of farming designed by an Austrian philosopher 150 years ago, which is, in practical terms, about creating a good ecosystem. But in terms of how it's actually written about, it talks a lot about activating cosmic energies and, and things that... It gets a little voodoo-y. Are a little, are a little like pixies and fairy dust. And some people grab onto it. Some people maybe kind of leave that stuff on the shelf and go to the other stuff. But I feel like there's a spectrum of how much a person who's, quote, biodynamically farming grabs onto that. Right. And there's some people who are all in. Sure. Like, they are all in on the mysticism as well as the, as well as the great farming. Um, but there are things that they just weren't concerned about 150 years ago, like that climate change was not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, topsoil retention was not an issue equality and fairness in compensation was not an issue. That just wasn't stuff that they, that they were thinking about and talking about. And so regenerative farming requires you, for example, to pay a living wage to all of your farm workers who, who come onto your property. It requires you to train them on their rights as farm workers and create systems where their feedback is solicited and encouraged and acted upon. You have things like that. You also have things about resource use. So I mean, a lot of biodynamic farms can be incredibly water intensive. Um, it's one of the ways that you get a nice, healthy ecosystem. But given that groundwater in a place like California is one of the scarce, scarce resources that we need to conserve, regenerative farming has requirements that you be reducing your dependence on these shared resources like groundwater and like non-renewable energy. So you have that fundamental core of what great farming is from biodynamics. And then there's all the other stuff about like resource use, animal welfare, farm worker fairness that are things that just weren't weren't discussion points, weren't, weren't things that people were thinking about 150 years ago. Is it all, and I don't want to dismiss what you're saying by using the word woke, because I know that that word can get kind of thrown around. Is it just the social equitable aspect? Are there any earthly things, earthly practices that regenerative encapsulates, or is it all outside of No, it's both. It's, it both. both. it's both. It's both. But the, a lot of those other things were part of biodynamics, uh, with, with one big exception. So one of the biggest exceptions is that that regenerative farming really requires that you be moving away from regular tillage. So, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, it's because over the last couple of decades, there's been huge leaps forward in the understanding of all of the networks that are created in healthy soil. Um, A lot of it is fungal. And 
it's also a place where you can trap a lot of atmospheric carbon. You think of your cover crops and your, your vines, everything else. They're growing, they're plants. They're, they're pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turning it into carbohydrates. Some of that becomes leaves, some of it becomes fruit, some of it becomes roots. And then every time you till, you break up all of these networks, you, you start these roots decomposing, and you re-release all that stored carbon back into the atmosphere. But it's not just about the carbon. It's also about the ability of soil networks to process the raw materials and turn them into the building blocks that your crop can take up. It's also about the ability of those soils to retain water. And so there are really practical concerns with how much, how much you need to irrigate because of how much you do or don't store from what falls from the sky, how much you would need to add fertility because of how much your soils are able to create on their own from the cover crops you plant and from the natural decomposition of those things that fall on the surface. Um, so yes, there are the things about like focusing on inequality and focusing on animal welfare. But those are separate pillars from the things about soil health, which I, I mean, soil is really the building block of everything that, that we do. And we spend more time now thinking about how we're farming our soil than we do about how we're farming our crop. Yeah, I think it's so cool that you guys are mindful of this stuff. Let me ask you a question. Sometimes you'll find, I'll hear people, they're like, um, it's the difference between being certified organic or certified this or that and just farming that way. I was talking to, uh, we had some people in town from the Russian River. And he's a sixth generation farmer and he has had, he's been organically farming his old line Zinfandel since 1900. You know, before this was even a thing, a trend, a mindfulness, right? And one day he's doing his stuff and somebody comes on his property and it's like, hey, we're doing this. Blah, blah. And then it, it, the conversation was like, well, you know, if you are if you'll certify or pay this or whatever, then you can call yourself. He's like, I've been doing this since 1900. Our family's been doing this. I don't need, I don't need that. There's people who are like, I have this conversation with like Chris Cherry. He's like, no, certify your damn self. Make yourself certified, <laughs> you know, get it done. And I've heard him talk to other winemakers. We're all at lunch. And he's like, no, you should be doing this. And uh, some people are like, look, if, if I know I'm farming by and I'm doing right by the land, then I don't need a certification if my customers know it and I know it. What, where, do you, where do you stand on this and, and what's a fair way to look at both those sides that seem to have some points? I mean, I'm maybe not quite as, as far on the edge as Chris, but I, I basically agree with him. Um, certification is not that hard. And it makes a point about what you do. It actually holds you to standards that somebody outside of your organization is going to audit. It really reduces the temptation to fudge here and there. Um, and it also makes a point that, that this matters and this is something that is worth communicating and investing in. And maybe not every certification is that, uh, is that same level of importance, but for something like us, for like the regenerative organic certification, that, that sort of the, the, the logo on the label, the ability to say, no, this is what we do. And these minimum standards are really high. Um, I think it gives it, it it shows that it's not just lip service. It shows that it is like there's credibility behind certification. And I think people sometimes use the oh, it's the paperwork is too much, it's too expensive. Like it, it becomes it, it gives them leeway to be like, well, we're we're basically organic, like except for this one or two other things that we that, that we don't do that organically because it's be too expensive. I mean, some people might look at it just principally, like I just don't want, I don't, I don't need another person to tell me X, Y, Z or tell me I'm not ABC. 
I can do it myself, but who knows? I mean, but I get what you're saying. I mean, I, again, I listen to both these very passionate points and like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like I'm looking at both sides going, no, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, I think that there are so many things that people can do short of certification that they should be doing to yeah. make their farming better. And, and the idea that like, if you aren't going to certify, there's no point in trying to make these improvements. Is I think one of the, like one of the most harmful, like, knee-jerk responses that, that you can sometimes get. If somebody's maybe not willing to certify organic, but if you are willing to stop using Roundup, like that's a huge step. Like maybe you're not yet willing to um, go to organic products for fighting mildew, but like that's something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, there's that. That's good. That's good. Maybe now you can move from spraying with a systemic pesticide to something that is less systemic, something that's a soap or an oil or something that will still knock your population back, but it's not a chemical that's going to do all of this other harm to your, your environment and your people. Like that's something that's worth doing, even if you can't certify. So I think it's I think it's important that people take whatever steps they can take to to be less of a to have less of a negative footprint and more of a positive footprint. But I do think that there is a point at which like that next step is to certify. Yeah. And when people get to that point, they should do it. RH, when you started in your writing, I mean, think about how the wine business has changed. Farming has changed mm-hmm. in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. When you start hearing about biodynamics, what were your first, your thoughts? I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of different people on that spectrum where they might really get into the very mystic and voodoo parts of it. Some might, might kind of leave that on the shelf like we talked about a second ago. And now you're starting to hear, again, like brands like Tabas Creeping, the first one, regenerative. We see other brands that are following their lead, like uh, Robert Hall and things like that, doing two rows and, and experimenting and let people walk down the roads and see the differences. How as a wine writer, how have you observed these changes of biodynamic and regenerative farming and, and, and reported on these to your readers? Well, I have an, a unique perspective because I also do marketing and PR for wineries. And so I let me just back up and say one of the reasons that writers call Jason is because aside from the fact that he speaks in complete sentences and uh, gives educational answers, he's also not full of bullshit, which is so prevalent in the wine business. Right. And everybody's using, oh, sustainable this, and now the regenerative is a new catchphrase. And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of these wineries that are throwing around these things, these statements in, or, in press releases and even in interviews, they're doing that because it's fashionable, because they're virtue signaling, because they're trying to sell wine and they're bullshitting. A lot of them are using undercover of night. They're using Roundup. And it's uh, and, and I know this and I see it and it really gets my goat. And so I have a lot of respect for people like Jason that actually not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And Chris Cherry is the same. But it's not as prevalent as you might think. And it's very hard to meet these standards. And so I'm a big believer in certification because it means you have to do the work and not just you don't just get to use the words because you get to you know to appeal to people um and but you're not really willing to put the work in so when i i choose to write about people that i feel are not bullshitting um and so because i'm i'm aware of it in the from the background and I won't work with people that are doing that. You know, I, and, and you can tell, you, you can just look at out of field and see it denuded and they're saying, well, we're sustainable. It's like, fuck, no, you're not sustainable. <laughs> I can tell. I'm not dumb. I can right, tell. Right, right, right. And um, 
Pardon my French, but uh, it's okay. No FCC here. <laughs> yeah, good, good. So that's that's kind of you know, the, so the way I come at it from writing is I try to I try to really study who's being genuine. I get pitched all the time, and sometimes I'll drive by a vineyard and I can just tell, well, that was just a full of shit pitch. And so, but you know, when I got here today or before you arrived, I told Jason I can't wait to. I want to talk to him about regenerative because i know he'll be legitimate yeah and so that's Shoot just straight yeah and so that's kind of how that's where i'm i'm very interested in biodynamics and i have been for a long time uh, as well as organics and as well as regenerative now but i i do not think it's as commonly practiced as people might in the business want you to think it is yeah uh, talk about Paso for a minute because Paso is something I know we talked about this at World of Pinot Noir and I love talking about Paso in circles like that because there's not a whole lot of Paso people there but to see what Paso is doing the Paso strides have been remarkable you know and it, it has been and I'm a little embarrassed to say that I I didn't know I was going to enjoy it as much as I I'm enjoying it and my wife didn't expect it to be such a great place to live really yeah I mean I th- we moved here uh, out of necessity because we uh, um, lost access to our, our rental at Tescadero. Our, our landlord raised the rent by $1,000 in one month. Oh, and uh, we just couldn't make it happen. This was during the pandemic. And so um, we... Well, a lot of people just, you know what they did? They just didn't pay rent and yeah, got away with it. So I that know. was... Well, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were oh. very fortunate to find a little rental uh, in Paso through the winemaker, uh, John Munch, who's legendary. Oh, man. Uh, friends of his. So we rented a little place. And... Um, it's interesting. I think that Paso is uh, a really nuanced place, and it's a very rich environment. I think the town square is a great unifier because it's really nice to live in a town that has a town square with all these great little restaurants around it. So from that perspective, it's just really fun to live in a place that has a central location. Um, but I am so enamored of the community, of the people, and um, not just winery owners, but restaurant owners and hotel owners. It's farmers and ranch owners and dry cleaners, and just everybody seems to be pretty friendly. And um, yes, there are conservative par- pockets. It depends, and that's fine too if you're conservative. But there's all kinds of different political leanings, but somehow people somehow come together. It's It's interesting because... During the, um, which is the way it should be. Yeah, it's the way it should be. And so, you know, I have friends whom I find out later are rather conservative. I'm not. Uh, if and I, but I'm not really into talking about politics. I don't even listen to the news because it's just a lot of fear mongering. So we we are we meet talking about family and music and television shows we like and wines we like. And it seems like a very unified community. And I didn't suspect that at this age I'd live to a small town that was as charming as it is that this still exists in this day and age it's been really life affirming to move to Paso and um, of all the places where I've lived and I've lived in Napa which is of course gorgeous Santa Barbara wine country which is splendid and I still love I have clients there I have clients in Napa this is probably the most satisfying place I've lived personally in terms of just cultivating relationships and it's so nice to see my wife happy because when you're in the wine business and you go out to dinner with a bunch of winery people, all they talk about is the trade and the wine business oftentimes. And the spouses are sort of ignored or they're sort of quiet and they don't really get to participate. You know, they'll ask my wife, what do you do? And she'll say that they just don't talk to her anymore. They'll just talk to each other. That was the case in other places where I lived. In Paso, that's not it at all. They want to engage her. They want to know about her. And it's so nice to see her 
excited to live here. So it's been just terrific. It's, I mean, I can't tell, say enough about how cool it is. It's got to be really cool for her to see, and you both, to see each other so happy in this area. Well, one, you're, she sees you flourish, and people, mm-hmm. you know, does she have anything to do with wine or no, nothing to do nothing with wine? Nothing at all. No. Yeah, nothing at all. Does she love, does she like wine? She loves wine. She probably has a better palate than I do. She's, really? Yeah, she loves wine. She's a huge Tobles Creek fan, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she, she loves wine. Yeah, so, but she doesn't, she doesn't get in the weeds, like if I say, oh, this was this, and this happened, and it was cold soaked, and not she, her her eyes roll and yeah. it plays over and she walks out of the room. She just knows what she likes and she has a really good palate. Have you tasted anything new or exciting of late? I mean, I know that you and I have a lot of the same faves, but uh, have you been into some like, you know, kind of, oh, I did this for the first time or, or anything yeah, of late? Yeah, for sure. You know, for, um, it's an established brand, but Maha Estate has a Claret Blanche, which I think is, or Blanc, uh, however you say that. How do you say it? Blanche. Blanche. I just think that wine is amazing. Um, I really also like uh, Alta Kalina's Carbonic uh, Grenache, I think it is. I think that's a really fun wine. I like Riley um, Riley's wines at Hubba. Me I think, too. I think she's a soulful winemaker. They have personality. And, um, yeah, I love her. She's great. Yeah, she's great. And so, yeah, and, and I'm probably forgetting. Uh, oh, I, there's this kid, uh, Daniel, who makes this wine called uh, the Slam Dance Cooperative. Uh, Daniel Callan. Daniel yeah. Callan. Yeah, and I, great. I think that wine He used is, to make the wines at um, Thatcher. That's right. And now he's at... Uh, He's at Phelan Farms, uh, Raj's place, I think. Oh, yeah, cool. that's where he's now assistant winemaker, I believe. He's one to watch for sure. Yeah, I love his Slam Dance Cooperative wines. I think they're vibrant and energetic, and they seem very alive. And he really likes to play, pay homage to the vineyard owners. And so uh, he's a good kid, and I, I think I'm got my eye on him. Um, you mentioned Alta Kalina. Yeah, Maggie Lomborg. I'm a big fan of her. Yes, and she and her little soul. Yes, little soul, and of yeah. course Jordy is here. At Tabas Creek, but they have a little place they live on, I think, York Mountain, and there's like a little Pinot yeah, out there. That's right. And they pick it super early yeah. and they do a carbonic Pinot. Have you tried that? No, but I, she's one that I want to interview. And oh, you got and to. I asked her and she said yes, and so now we're just trying to find a date. <laughs> oh, you got to. Yeah. 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 Molly. Molly is great. Molly's yeah. terrific. She's another one that I've got my eye on. She, I just think she's very smart, down to earth. So, yeah, there, there are pro- there's just so many. And, um, and it's fun yeah. when, a, when a winemaker can go to a brand that doesn't need help. Like Alta Kalina has been farming great and doing great wines, but somehow the chemistry, it makes it even better. Yes, it does. You know, and like, yeah, and I think yeah. Maggie and Bob would say that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's super neat what she's doing over yeah, there. Yeah. But yeah, you just mentioned some great ones. I love it. Yeah, and I know that I'll go home and think, oh, I didn't mention this or that, because there's, I mean, oh, you know, I need to also mention Anthony and, and Hilary Yant oh, yeah. and their project. Uh, they have two projects, Canero and then Royal Nun such farms mm-hmm. and he's the winemaker at dinner and i like those wines but i love the stuff that they do you know on their own um it's, i've been it's meaning to talk special. to him after the acquisition of dinner like mm-hmm. did he lose his ability to make all those wines there i mean that i don't know you know um he seems happy and he's there still so okay. uh the, i my own experience with the gallo family when they purchase a property is that they they don't they tend not to rock the boat too much a lot of people will come in and they'll say, well, we're going to keep everybody. And a year later, everybody's gone. Right. Uh, but uh, the Gallo family has made some wise uh, acquisitions and they've kept key people in place. So he seems happy. It seems to make sense, especially for Paso, because Paso, if you're coming into this area and you learn one thing, like the people make a difference and, you know, whether it's Constellation of Booker or and keeping Eric around or something, because these personalities, they, they mean something. Yeah. Do you look at the, the landscape, Jason, and, and wonder as some might 
okay, we let's slow this down a little bit, or <laughs> or or do we think like, okay, well, I get it, it's going to happen because we're blowing up. What are your thoughts on that kind of growth and the acquisitions from from big companies? I'm sort of amazed it took this long, honestly. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you think you think of Paso. I mean, with the exception of Justin being bought. And that was really a generational transition issue. Like they didn't have a, a next generation who 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 was ready to step in, interested in stepping in. But other than that, I mean, Paso wineries are basically all still owned by their founding founding families. They are, they are. Um, and there are a bunch of them on second generations at this point. Whether you look at Peach Canyon, you look at Hope Family, you look, I mean, whatever. There's a bunch more examples. Jay Ducey. And I feel like that is one of the things that has made the Paso community as cohesive as it is, is that in general, it's it's owner operators and it's people who live here. Like if you go to the farmer's market, you see a dozen other winery folks. If you go to the Little League games, like all of the Little League teams are sponsored by wineries. Like it's like it's it's a community. It's not just like a nexus of businesses. Um, and that's different from both Napa and from Santa Barbara County, where you have a lot of people who... I mean, in Santa Barbara, you have people who are living in the city of Santa Barbara, which is 45 minutes away from wine country. Or you got people who are living in L.A. and Malibu. In Napa, you got a lot of people who are living in the Bay Area. It's not they're not mm-hmm. located in the same in the town. Um, and so, I do worry that as you see corporate acquisitions coming in from out of town, that it'll change the character of the place. That it'll make it harder to harder to build and, and maintain that sense of community. But for me, it just sort of underlines the importance of continuing to work at it. I mean, mm-hmm. community doesn't just happen. Community is created by people who decide that it's a priority. And I mean, whether working through the the Paso Wine Alliance, which I mean, it's great that it has the support that it has mm-hmm. from the, the percentage of the community that it has, or whether it's something more fundamental, like working through charities that are based here, working through organizations that are based here to, that try to make the community a better place. Like, I, I think that it's incumbent on all of us to kind of double down our support of those connections, those things that build those connections, because it is a special place because of that community that's developed here. And and it's worth it's worth working to preserve. How do we share the vineyard? I love how places here, they're just so desiring to you know share with fans of the wines what we're doing here uh, are there ways to do vineyard tours i know with your blogs i mean there's pictures and there's there's all different ways you guys are trying to share what you're doing with folks and fans of your wines yeah i mean we, we take people out on tours every day um you can sign up for one right on our website it's easy um we'll also do seminars pretty regularly to actually get people out in a little more educational way we did one um, that was a, a family-friendly one. We encouraged people to bring their kids and talked about regenerative farming That's awesome. and talked about the use of animals in the vineyard and, and all of that. We did that this spring. That was great. And then we do try to make sure that people who can't visit still feel like they have access to, and that's through the blog, through through what we post on social media, through the 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 video stuff that we that we work on. Because I mean, there's we know that most of our fans aren't going to be coming here in any given day or week or month or or even year. Um, and if we can make the feeling of being here accessible to them, that's 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 worth investing in. Wine Fest was huge this year, and it was bigger and better than ever. I mean, well over 110 wineries, and only one had actual livestock. <laughs> we did. <laughs> at, that was us. At the Paso Robles Event Center, it was so cool to see your installation. Talk about that. We spend a lot of time trying to think about, like, if we do an event, how do we do it in a way that feels, like, relevant to who we are? Um, and so... 
mean, we've we've just had tables at that event in the past and poured our wines, and that's great. But we decided that it was worth investing in one of the larger larger kind of event booths. And if we were going to do it, like what was the message that we wanted to send to people? And we decided that for us, the most important thing to do was to talk about the regenerative farming. So we had the sheep and they were definitely um, uh, kind of a magnet for people to come in, like walking by being like, what's there a sheep doing here? Why is there a penny zoo at Winefest? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, but we also had um, Yvonne, who's our shepherd, was there kind of talking people through what we do. Uh-huh. We had examples of all of the different pieces of the cover crop that we plant. We... We tried to dive into not just the like the the kind of superficially kind of fun cute things like the animals, but talk in a more serious way about why we were doing this. What like what else was involved? Why yeah. it mattered? Um, and hopefully, like there'll be some people who who saw that had never thought about that, get turned on by the idea, and decide to take it further. Yeah, my first um, real tour here years and years ago. With the Corkdorks episode, we were in the vineyards and we were making compost tea, yep. you know, the worm tea, and we were doing, um, you know, I was holding the feed for, you know, the sheep and the alpacas, <laughs> and he's like, okay, I want you to say, come here, ladies, and then shake it up, and I go, come here, ladies, and I shake this up, and I was like... Like, it was like, oh, my gosh, they're coming from everywhere. I had sandals on. I'm like, I'm no, like, shepherd, you know. And then I'm just like, oh, I think I just, like, dropped it and ran. It, I mean, it, it, these shepherds, I mean, what they're doing in there, what you're doing with the animal husbandry and, and the, the cover crops, I mean, it is just this well-thought natural machine that's really beautiful. It's an attempt to make our farm as self-sufficient as we possibly can. I mean, you think of the challenges when you're farming a crop in general, like even if you've managed to move away from a monoculture where you're just growing the thing that you're harvesting and maybe you're leaving sections with native vegetation, maybe you're interplanting fruit trees, maybe you're maybe you're planting bee habitat. I mean, these are all things that are really good to do, but still it's, a, it's an unbalanced ecosystem without animals. And so if you can figure out a way to incorporate grazing animals into your farm unit, the benefits to your soil health and the microbial activity underneath the soil is enormous, absolutely enormous. And you have to do it in a thoughtful way. You can't just like, whatever, let's release some sheep in the vineyard as they happily eat all of your grapes. You have to, you have to have a plan. And we started out with a, with a, with an idea of a plan and eventually realized we needed to hire somebody who, who really knew what they were doing. How do they not eat the grapes? I never thought of that. We move them into the forests in the summer. Okay, got it. Oh, okay. So right now they're out there eating down the grasses and, and shrubs and and dead leaves and all that, which produces a lot of the fuel for that makes wildfire such a risk and helping regenerate the forests. And then as soon as we pick, we bring them back into the vineyard. RH, how can people learn more about some of the writing and, and how do people find you? Well, how uh, do we go get a drink sometime? I want to like meet your yeah, wife. Right? I, want, I just, every time I hang out with you, go, why don't I hang out with her more? Like, same, same, uh, brother, same. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go downtown and. Where do you, where do you like to hang out locally? Gosh, you know, that's the other thing about Paso. Brother, in the small town, they have some really good restaurants. I know. So I'm I'm often at this local place called the Paso Wine Merchant, oh, and it's inside them. the Paso Wine Walk. Yeah. It's small. Justin and Julie, the owners, do great food. There's not much on the menu, but everything is really wholesome and wonderfully sourced. They have a great small wine selection. Uh, I like Finca right next door. Me which, too. Which is great. Uh, great oysters. We are talking oysters off the air. Yes. Great oysters, by great the way. Great oysters. And then on the Paso Square, uh, there's Le Petit Canai, of course, which is fabulous. I happen to love uh, BL Brasserie, which is a little bit more old school. So good. 
good lunch there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love a good BL brasserie lunch. Um, and then I don't go there so much for the food, although it's probably very good, but I'm a big mezcal girl. Really? So I was going to ask you if you like cocktails. I do. And so I go to Fish Gaucho because they have a great mezcal um, selection. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, to read a, to to read about me, I mean, just you know, Google R H Drexel um, or ask my mother, and she'll tell you. Um, <laughs> That's such a sweet answer. Isn't <laughs> is your mom around still? She is. Thank oh, goodness. So cool. Yeah, both my parents are still alive, uh, and I I try to save her every every time that I'm I'm with them. They live in Napa, and uh, and so my and my brother and sister um, are are my brothers in Napa. My sister. Are they jealous that you're here? Or do they think you're crazy? Well, my sister moved to Paso about a year ago because she, I think she was a little jealous. Yeah. And, uh, she was really taken to it. A little yeah. Paso FOMO. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, she's very happy, just as I am here. rhdrexel.com. Yes. And then what does the RH stand for? RH stands for the River House, which is a home in uh, New Orleans. If soul, if cities were soulmates, uh, New Orleans would be my soulmate. And uh, off of uh, Frenchman Street in the Jazz Quarter, there's a, a great house called the river house and so uh, I love to write there and I'm inspired there and so that was where the RH came from and Drexel is the name of an American philanthropist uh, and she gave a lot of money to Drexel University and to a lot of other and to schools on reservations and uh, she was a, an amazing woman and just for good luck and inspiration I, I took her pen name that's not my real name but I write under a pen name because it just gives me a little more creative freedom. I like that. It's so funny because coming into broadcasting, now this is my real name, but a lot of people in broadcasting, you know, especially when you, you know, the boss jocks of like when my dad Wolfman was growing, Jack. Right. Yeah. They, they always <laughs> had these different like, you know, jock names that were yeah. very different. So I thought yeah. it'd be so interesting to ask you like why that pen name. So where did Lone Baby come from, that name? I just love uh, nature and I grew up on a farm in Napa and I used to hike all the time a lot around Stag's Leap and uh, the Mayakamas range. And uh, I love loam and soil. I'm a child of nature. So loam baby just sound, had a little snap to it. I think it does. It's got a little sass to it. I really Thank like you. it. It's really good. And this is like, a, right now it's like an e-zine. Yes. And, and, and all the copies are available uh, to read for free uh, digitally at RH Drexel. And then hopefully we'll go back into print uh, next year. And it, I just kind of publish it as I have time. Is print almost like corks? Like it's like the romanticism of it? Or, or is there, uh, I mean, I mean, gosh, I mean, I imagine digital is just as good now, right? You know, yeah, a digital is great, and I have no judgment against it or for it. I mean, it's great, but I am a tactile person, and I love to bo- hold a book in my hands. Do you read books? Books? Yes. Like, I read books with either the screen or uh, oftentimes. Do you consider, if I read a book or listen to a book audio, Yeah. can I still say I read the book? You sure can. Okay. Absolutely. Feel. Absolutely. Because I've read a lot of books in my in my ear holes, <laughs> but I don't read them with oh, pages. Or, okay, good. Because yeah, I was yeah, always yeah. like yeah, a little yeah. bit nervous to be like, no. well, you listened to it, Adam. You didn't quite read it. But no, yeah. I think that's totally, you read it. totally yeah, good. Yeah, you read it. You read it. <laughs> Do you have an Audible account? Do you do that too do. a little bit? I do. I listen. It's it's great for long car rides. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of time. I, I tend to listen to podcasts on my way into work and home because that's like 20, 25 minutes. Like that's a good chunk of time. Yeah. But if I have to, to do one of the whatever, four or five times a year, I have to drive to San Francisco or LA or San Diego or, or Napa. Like that's, that's audiobooks for me. What is a podcast that Jason Haas likes? I'm so interested. <laughs> um, what are some ones that so, we're doing? Um, for people who are in the in the wine business, uh, wine industry, or just sort of wine adjacent, um, I love the Bedrock Wine Podcast. That uh, no, we're not just going to pump a whole bunch of other wine podcasts, are we? <laughs> yeah, sorry, Jason? no, no, I'm totally um, no, no. And I'll answer that one too. You know, please, uh, please, yeah, please, yeah. Do. no, the, Sam, all go ahead. 
that the that the team at at Bedrock does um, interviews with different people in the world of wine. Cool, um, which I think is really fascinating. I'm sort of a history geek. Um, there's a, a podcast called the British History Podcast that I think is one of the best of its kind. Another one that's called Fall of Civilizations, which I find like really, that's a long form podcast that's like three four hour long episodes that I think is really wow. cool. Cool. Oh, those those are a few of my out. favorites. What about you, RH? You know, I really love uh, Theo Vaughn. He's a comedian and he Stop has a it. podcast. I, we're, are we like brother and sister <laughs> I think we may be. Oh, my gosh. I think gosh. we may be. Yeah, he's wonderful. Gang, gang. He makes me so happy. And then uh, <laughs> I totally uh, agree. somewhat controversially, and I don't agree with him on everything, but I do very much appreciate Joe Rogan because he brings on great guests. I'm especially fond of Duncan Trussell, who's a, a regular guest and has his own podcast. Uh, but um, but I never thought, it's so funny now, now in this time, we have to like qualify. Mm-hmm. Just so you know, I don't always agree with him. But like, I don't need to agree with someone to listen to them. In fact, Nor do I. oftentimes, because I grew up like, you know, in LA, I listened to talk radio and yeah. sometimes it was, it was almost fun to listen to someone who you specifically didn't agree with. Exactly. And now yeah. in the time, especially, I mean, not to get into like news and politics, but I won't get one story from one publication. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to get it from one, two, three, maybe hear a, a, an audio version of it. And then we sort out, okay, what what's the ish here? Yeah. But I, I love how you, you said that because, you know, I mean, Joe Rogan, he's thoughtful guests, thoughtful takes, and funny, a little irreverent. And yeah, fundamentally, I think a good person with an open heart. Yeah. He, he, uh, he's outspoken and he has some views I don't share, but gosh, it'd be boring if you just listen to people that you agree with. Totally. That would bore me. Uh, so anyway, I, I enjoy him very much too. And I do listen to podcasts. Uh, I get tired of television just at my age, The watching it and my eyes. It's just, it's a bit much. So I, I kind of enjoy the, the podcast yeah. scene. Yeah. I love being edified with, with spoken word you know i think you can get lost in it whether it's like doing dishes uh there's a a comedy podcast i I love from a gentleman who used to do radio in la his name is phil hendry and um i would definitely recommend that if you like find if you like theo vaughn phil hendry is um he does voices and he will do the voices of like let's say like you're thinking of like a studio full of like four or five people but he is in real time doing one guy is like a, a veteran in his 70s one is this woman who lives like in a, a gated community one and he will do all of the voices in real time literally interrupting himself it's beyond an art but Phil Hendry okay yeah Phil, but it's just so fun so yeah I love being able to laugh like Spock Phil Vaughn I mean mm-hmm. these are really good ones and I'm totally going to look at those uh, those historical Bedrock, ones yeah. Yeah, and the the British one sounds really interesting too. Yeah, podcasts are great, and it was almost like you know because you talked about blogs earlier, and back in the day when blogs first became a thing, it was like everyone who wanted to write but really wasn't good enough to be a writer, <laughs> they could have a blog. Mm-hmm. So the blogosphere became saturated and good, just like Spotify. If you want to put a song out there, you can have a song on Spotify. Doesn't mean it's going to get a lot of listeners. It's going to be good, but it can be out there. An artist can speak to their fans and that end user directly mm-hmm. right same thing with the blog and now the podcast as a broadcaster i love that of course the podcast uh, scene i mean there's probably a couple million podcasts floating above us right now it's really encouraging to see like i mean this one all 50 states 109 countries have listened to to where wine takes you and you're like oh damn with all these things floating above us people are seeing something about paso that's that's really really special it's really neat that's wonderful and congratulations on that by the way yeah i know it's cool and it's really a testament to paso Paso Wine, I mean, I love the work that I'm doing with Paso Wine, but I mean, Paso Wine has always been ahead of its time in 
giving that message out, getting that gospel out, that good news about Paso that, I mean, I don't know, Jason, it feels like it does it, it definitely does it better than any other, you know, Vintners membership association that I know of. Uh, I mean, it's, again, it's something that's the result of a lot of work by a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't just happen. But yeah, I mean, we've had a series of really strong executive directors. Joel is doing amazing work and the the leadership of that first generation of Paso wineries, the Gary Eberleys and the Ken Volks and the Justin Baldwins and the Jerry Lors saying... Like, we're all going to support Paso. We're all going to talk about Paso first. Um, and it made it easy for those of us in that next group, the whatever, L'Aventure and us. and Trevison. Uh, and Yeah, Trevison and Justin Smith. Yeah. And, like, all of that next group to be like, oh, this is a pretty cool community. We want to be a part of this. You know what's so interesting is that folks will, they have to... Is it for the board? You have to like vote in and like you have to like kind of not almost like campaign a little bit. You have to get votes or something. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal and people want to be a part of it and they will campaign to get votes to be a part of it. In some other local wine places, they're like, they're running for the hills. They don't want to be a part of it because it's either a pain in the ass. It's like, like we talked about herding cats and people want to be a part of it. That's one of the things I think, I think dynamism breeds dynamism like Mm -hmm. things that are like that you see doing good work like you're more excited to be a part of that good work than you are if you're like "Eh, that's only okay i mean maybe some people would be motivated by feeling like i can do this better but i for me i think it's better to to join an organization to want to to want to help guide an organization that's on a good track that really like you just want to keep it going keep keep being ahead of the curve keep being ready for the next thing uh, this is a beautiful wine I can't believe that we're drinking this right now before anyone else the 2021 Esprit de Tablas now what if you get a vintage back and you're like I mean are you, are you married to it leading with Maved what if sometime Neil or you just don't want it to it's only happened once and we decided that we shouldn't make an Esprit in that vintage okay um, that, that we couldn't make a wine that was led by Morvedra that we were really proud of and so we just didn't make it okay um, but we the, the blend can change quite a lot. This has been anywhere from 35 to 57% Morvedra. Sometimes the number two grape is Grenache. Sometimes it's Syrah. Sometimes we have three other grapes in it. Sometimes we only have one. Um, and that gives us plenty of flexibility to make sure that we can show off what makes the year great. And that Morvedra lead provides the thread that kind of holds it together year after year. Quick wine game before we get out of here. I don't think you've ever played the wine game, Jason Haas. I'm sure you have. Do you remember it? Uh, no, I don't. The wine game is uh, its very easy in concept. We're going to go around clockwise, and we're just going to name Paso brands, wineries, wines. Okay. And the two things you don't want to do, mm-hmm. you don't want to pause longer than three seconds. Oh, geez. And you don't want to repeat one that's already been said. Oh, my word. <laughs> All right. So it's a little bit of a, it's like a little game show here. So we just name brands? Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. So right. um, we will start. Ladies first, go ahead. We'll come around here. So uh, let's start the clock and we're just going to go around and go ahead. Kaliza. There you go. Talbot's Creek. <laughs> Thatcher. Le Cuvier. Barton Family. Lina Colotto. Alta Kalina. Grey Wolf. <laughs> Adelaida. Peachy Canyon. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Thibodeau. <laughs> Chateau Margine. Levo. Donati. Eberly. Hubba. Uh, Justin. <laughs> Monochrome. Jay Lore. <laughs> Desperada. <laughs> I'm very intimidated. You guys are very uh, quick. Tolo. Cass. Uh, Calcareous. Carmody McKnight. Slam Dance Cooperative. Little Soul. Denner. Slayton Wines. Dow. <laughs> Canero. Adelaida. 
Was that said already? I said that. One. Okay, you are out. <laughs> oh, okay. Right on. All right, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Now it's Adam and Jason Haas. This is Oof. very intimidating. It's a little drum roll. Goodness gracious! <laughs> All right, how about uh, Velikana? Jordana. Mm. Carmody McKnight. I already said that one. No, what you said, Carmody McKnight. I did. Who <laughs> says Carmody McKnight, Jason Haas? <laughs> Only somebody who's been here for twenty-one years. Yeah. <laughs> Jason neighbor. is the winner. <laughs> oh, cheers, guys. I can't thank you guys enough <laughs> so much for sharing uh, where wine is taking you both. R.H. Drexel. I uh, just love hanging out with you. rhdrexel.com. Thank you. Did you have fun here? I had such a great time. Yeah, two beautiful people. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Adam. It really means a lot it to you here. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Uh, Jason Haas, it's always fun to spend time with you. I really enjoy it. I think we were texting maybe a month or so ago and it was like, yeah, we haven't seen each other. Or, you know, we, sometimes we'll run into each other at these events, but to have the chance and to share your time with me as you have a life, a family, and everything. It really means a lot, so thank you. Well, thank you, and thank you for creating this this incredible resource for, for Paso and its fans. Yeah, cheers to where my take. Cheers. Right on. Give me that action, we'll get by, we pass on around till the job is Camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. There you go. That's how you do that. Tablas Creek. Great conversation. Love both those folks. Jason Haas. Tablascreek.com. Get out there and go taste. I'd say make a reservation. They'll gladly take you if they're available. But I always say for a place like that, take a vineyard tour. Check it out. Go to TalbusCreek.com to learn more. And one thing I love about Talbus Creek, and not many wineries do this, if you have an old Talbus Creek wine in your cellar, I want to go check out my 13 Esprit is doing or whatever. You can go on their website and actually check out how it's tasting. They open up these library wines all the time, stay up on it, and keep you as a fan of their wines up on it. I love that. Not nearly as many wineries do that and have that kind of relationship with their library and are so able and willing to share it. Love it. Also, how do you not love R.H. Drexel? She is one of a kind. Can't wait to chill with her more, learn about her more, and especially have her back on this podcast more. Really enjoy her company, her time, and her mind. All right, if you've got plans to come out to Paso, September 16th, 17th, that is the weekend Whale Rock Music and Arts Festival is going down at Castoro Cellars. I got Luke Udson on the phone to chat all about it. Luke, it is great to talk to you. How you doing? Doing great, man. Beautiful day. Look, I am, congratulations, dude. Ten years of Whale Rock. I don't even know. Originally, this was kind of like, you know, it was an anniversary party. Then we're celebrating your 30 years as a winery with your mom and dad and the family. And now Whale Rock in and of itself, 10 years old. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, this year in particular, we're celebrating 10 years of the Whale Rock Music and Arts Festival and 40 years of Castoro Cellars. So, so big. It's kind of a, it's a big double whammy for us. Yeah. And what a lineup. And this has been one thing that I've always talked about this festival. Like, I always learn about new bands that I become lifelong fans of from here, too. So quite a job you do at curating some sound, but also we're bringing in big names. And what you've been able to do is even like getting people on this kind of this ascension, this rise, even in their own careers where you're getting people who are, you know, performing in front of uh, big audiences or, you know, winning like Grammys or on, you know, the late night shows. But here they are coming to uh, our uh, organic vineyard in Paso for this big two-day festival. Totally. I mean, that's kind of the the goal of the festival is, you know, I, I want people to be excited about the bands they haven't heard about because, you know, those are ten, those tend to be the ones that 
blow your mind the most, you know, when you have no expectations and you go out there and you see somebody perform that you just had no idea what to expect, you get blown away. And that's kind of, you know, how the whole lineup is designed. It's designed to be diverse musically, but also um, incredible high caliber of musicality. So every act is, you know, just incredible and different from one another. And, um, you know, it just makes for a really special day, both days. A special weekend. Let's talk about the music this year. Uh, Saturday, 916, Marcus King headlines. You got like the premier Earth, Wind and Fire tribute, Earth, Wind and Power, Sierra Hall, Ron Artiste the second, and The Truth, Hunter Tones, Boot Juice, Mama Magnolia, Wolf Jet. Talk about Saturday's lineup. Yeah, um, it's, it's a big one, man. Uh, Marcus King is absolutely crushing it right now. Uh, he's been touring with uh, Chris Stapleton this summer. Um, doing his own shows as well, but, you know, just really up and coming, um, artist, uh, amazing guitar player, um, kind of in that like Southern roots, blues, rock and roll, soul, um, you know, the guy's like 26, 27 years old. Um, but just an absolute phenom. So, uh, we're, we're really stoked to have him. His last album was nominated for the best uh, Americana album, Grammy. Um, which is super cool, and it was produced by Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys. Yeah, we're really excited to have Marcus, really lucky to have him this year. Also, that uh, Earth, Wind, and Power tribute is super cool. Uh, it's a show that's put together by a band called the Nth Power, and they're pulling together people from uh, a bunch of different groups to make, I think it's going to be like a 14-piece band. It has Justin Timberlake's horn section, including members from the Trey Anastasio band, who's the you know, guitar player for Fish. Um and it's just like this all-star band Damn. that's going to be, uh, you know, a tribute to Earth, Wind, and Fire. So super cool. And just down the whole day, it's just amazing music and, you know, a lot of uh, different types of music, too. Now, Sunday, a Wolf Jet again, then throwing out Bones, Big Richard, Samba Loca is back, a local boys, Proxima Parada, and their Corey Wong back to the festival, the Fearless Flyers, and finally the Wood Brothers. Sunday hits just as hard, man. Totally. Yeah, we're really excited about that, too. We got, yeah, you know, the Grammy nominated Wood Brothers who've been around for a long time. There's always thrown down an excellent show. Really excited about the Fearless Flyers. That's also kind of like this super group situation. It actually features Corey Wong, is also in the Fearless Flyers, and it's kind of a offshoot of the band Wolfpack. So it's just like musically insane group, and they play like instrumental funk songs that are just like, you know, their own stuff. They do spins on uh, songs people know, and uh, it's great. And Corey Wong is going to play as well with his uh, nine-piece band, you know, full horn section. Uh, he's also bringing a vocalist. So it's going to be, yeah, just a hard-hitting, amazing day of music. Now, all those acts we just said, that's on one stage. That's just the main stage Saturday and Sunday. You got a smaller stage while the other stages are getting set up. You got yoga, art, food, wine, beer, kombucha. I mean, you got everything out there, something for the kids even. Talk about just the vibe that you paint with Whale Rock, even beyond the music, Luke. Yeah, the whole, you know, the event is, um, you know, designed to be a community event, um, you know, with a family focus. So we pride ourselves in being family friendly and we have, you know, a big kids area with tons of stuff to do from, uh, you know, face painting to crawling through an old hollowed out oak tree. Um, there's a magic show. There is kids yoga. It's just, you know, there's tons of stuff for, for kids to do and families. 
and just the vibe, you know, it's not, it, it's a, it's a wine country festival, but it's not like a, a hard party festival. It's very family friendly and people are, you know, very community driven and very social and friendly. And, you know, the whole festival is raising money for the Templeton High School music program. There's a lot of parents of, um, you know, kids who are in that program and kids from that program who are really excited to be there to be raising money for that. So, you know, it's just all around really good vibes and, um, you, you'll have a hard time finding somebody who's not having a good time at Whale Rock. Where do you want people to go get tickets? Uh, best way to get tickets is at whalerockmusicfestival.com. Whalerockmusicfestival.com. We will see you Saturday, September 16th and 17th at Castoro Sellers. Imagine this great show we've been describing, surrounded by organically farmed vineyards by a great family. Just uh, been pioneering Paso wine country forever, and it's just a great vibe. You got to check it out, even when that area is not putting on a big music festival. Some of the best uh, disc golf all around, great wines. And Luke, I can't thank you enough for spending time and sharing where wine takes you. We'll see you at Whale Rock, my man. Awesome, man. Can't wait for it. Castoro Bethel Road Distillery, your wine, your spirits taken care of, and Whale Rock Music and Arts Festival is about to go down. Don't miss it. September 16th and 17th. Ton of good names. The website's great, too. WhaleRockMusicFestival.com because you could check out, get little uh, bits and YouTube videos from all the different acts, get a little taste, a little flavor of what you're about to get into. And of course, taste the Castoro wines. Uh, check out Taste the Distillery, the spirits at Bethel, award-winning spirits, fantastic stuff, what Max and Luke are doing, and really taking that torch that Beaver and Bimmer, you know, started 40 years ago, Castoro. Well done. Now they got well over 1,000, maybe 1,500 acres planted organically. I'm not sure anybody has more organic acres planted than Castoro. And before your next trip, check out TravelPaso.com. Lots of great info there. It's really a must-check before your next trip out here, travelpaso.com. And thanks to Travel Paso for our Travel Paso Spotlight. Please take a moment, if you have not, to subscribe, rate five stars, and review the podcast. It means so much when you do. And even just clicking that share button and sending this episode to a friend, maybe someone who loves writing, someone who loves Tablas Creek, someone who loves puppies, rainbows. Just share it with a friend and know we appreciate you so much for doing it. Bittersweet day for the Where Wine Takes You family. Jennifer Bravo, who's been the associate producer on the pod since, gosh, it's beginning, right? She's been with Paso Wine for a long time, has not just left Paso, but left California with her sweetheart for a brand new life in Texas. Congratulations. So much great Paso Wine is out there. I know she will be back to visit. Want to thank her for everything she's done for Paso for Paso Wine members, for Paso Wine, for this podcast. Uh, Paso's definitely going to miss Jen Bravo. So cheers, Jen. And although, yes, we miss you, we are excited as you are for this new chapter and couldn't be more thrilled for you. The Where Wine Takes You podcast is produced. The Where Wine Takes You podcast is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer and fulfillment, thanks to Jamie Guzman. The show is hosted, edited, produced by yours truly. Original music on the pod, Good Company, performed by Moonshiner Collective. Stream them wherever you get your music, and you can learn more about them, moonshinercollective.com. They just played concerts in the plaza last Friday. Ooh, man, it was so good. It was like hanging out with a couple thousand of your best friends. The weather, it was just so good. They still got some more dates. I think they got something in September. Check out moonshinercollective.com. They are great live a wonderful live performing band you just feel it you feel them you feel the vibes love dan curcio and the guys from moonshiner collective technical consideration and equipment transport provided by fly with wine 
The next time you're cruising around the Central Coast, please tune me in on your radio. My morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning, heard weekday mornings 6 to 10 on the Crush 92.5. Crush with a K, K-R-U-S-H. You can uh, log on to our website, crush925.com. We stream the station there. Also, we got an app in your smartphone. We stream the station there. And for more on me, check out my Instagram at Adam on the air. You can also learn more adammontiel.com. Keep in mind, PasoWine.com for the next time you are coming out to Paso. That is a mandatory go-to as well. And Paso's got a brand new app. Search in your app store. I actually got a few messages in my DMs from people listening to the podcast wanting to know how to find the app. It is simple. Go to your app store, Paso Wine. Search for that brand new app. Don't you love seeing apps where it doesn't say in-app purchases also? You know, like, no. The whole resource is there for you. Use it. The filters are fantastic. What if you want to find a winery that's in Willow Creek, that's open Thursdays, that does X, Y, Z? The filters are fantastic. It's really user-friendly. The brand new free Paso Wine app. It's in your app store. Just search for Paso Wine. Wow, what an episode. Summer's wrapping up. Things cooling down a bit. I love the fall. We don't see much of it here, but I love, even I look for those trees that turn a little bit. Ooh, I love the fall. And you know what we'll be talking about soon, Harvest Wine Month, and just harvest in general. It is coming. I already know some people who have started to pull in fruit. Harvest 2023, it's just about to be on. We called this episode Tales from the Script, and it was all about wine writing and connecting with folks in wine through words. So as you lift that glass, may our path be as enchanting as the tales they share. Cheers to the symphony of flavors, symphony of stories, the symphony of paths where wine takes you. And give me that passion, give out and pass on down till the job is and out in the trees it will simplify on good company. Give me that moonshine, give out and pass on down till the job is and out in the trees it will simplify on good company. Give me that moonshine, give out and pass on down till the job is and out in the trees it will simplify on good company. Give me that moonshine. Get by, we pass all around till the job is dry. Camped out in the trees, we will simplify in good company.